0: Welcome inside the Legends Legends Lounge, Lounge, where baseball VIPs are hanging out and talking about their life in the game.
1: Oh, I feel like this is a pretty relevant week. Pitching wise, we have to bring in a legend, a Hall of Famer in Jim Cott, Kitty, because he would appreciate. No hitters we've seen in the past week, especially the one on Friday with Reed Detmer's low strikeouts. But then even on Sunday, when the Reds no hit the Pirates, but they actually lose the ball game. So
0: it's a pitching themed week. We, we definitely have that. And, and so far, you know, when you look at the season, it kind of been a pitching themed season, really. And uh, the Rays are a great example. Not only did they get no hit, uh, by Detmer, great job by him, even though with a lot of strikeouts. But they also got, threw a no hitter for nine innings. Game went into extra innings against uh, <laughs> Boston. Uh, Boston finally, you know, scored. They went ahead and they ended up winning in extra innings. But they did no hit him for nine innings. So, again, since he won, very weird, but it fits uh, perfectly for Kitty for Jim Cott because he had that type of crazy long, uh, luxurious career. This guy knows everything about pitching. Can't wait, Jim Cott.
1: Let's do it. The great Jim Cott has seen it all, 25 seasons in the bigs, a 1982 World Series champ, a three-time All-Star with the best pitching glove in the biz. He won 16 straight Gold Glove Awards, 16, superstar broadcaster for decades. I've had the honor to call games with Jim. Kitty is in the lounge. Kitty, how's life?
2: <laughs> well, it couldn't be much better than it's been since December 5th. Uh, a lot of exciting things that happened and uh, a lot of exciting things on the, on the table. And uh, like Tony Oliva and I, we we were in Minnesota throwing out the first pitch. I said, you know, our big thing, uh, T, is uh, at 83, he's now, I think, 84, going to be uh, stay alive and stay healthy and enjoy this summer.
1: You're living it up, and <laughs> you are a Hall of Famer. I, I described just a little tidbit of what leads to A Hall of Fame call, a resume like yours, 25 seasons, the gold gloves, the whole deal. And you know, we've spoken in the past too, where I I know I've said on air somewhere when I read the accolades and the resume for Jim Cott, that is a Hall of Fame resume. Here it is, it's all real now. I've said this to you via it was either a text or an email, but I can say it, you know, for the world to hear. Congratulations. Super well deserved. What is your thought? What is your mindset? How special is this for you to add to what is a really storied career in baseball, not just on the field, of course, like I mentioned?
2: Well, I think different than uh, Big Poppy. I saw Poppy in a show in Chicago recently, but I think the younger, uh, sort of automatic Hall of Famers, uh, for them, it's a celebration. Uh, for me, after missing by uh, a narrow margin a few times and then having, you know, the right people on the committee that play, I played against, I played with, executives that saw me, media people that saw me, I think it's really, uh, I'm more gratified than in a mood to celebrate. Uh, give you a quick example, one of the sweetest calls I got on Monday morning after the announcement on December 5 was from Willa Allen and that's Dick's widow and Dick and I were we were so close during our days in Chicago and Philadelphia and he missed by a vote I said to uh, Willa I said think about this there were five of us that were getting most of the support and the committee could vote for four I said, if they one of the voters got down to the last vote and they had to choose between Dick and me, and they chose Dick, I said, well, I'd be calling you, because she said, oh, Dick would be so happy. You know, we just uh, we just bonded so quickly together. But that's how fine the line is for us veterans of being finally getting in or not. So uh, you know, I'm I'm gratified for that. I'm enjoying it, but. I'm not doing handstands. I'm gratified, uh, grat- you know, grateful that at age 83 that uh, it finally happened.
0: Wow, that that's a great story. I'm gonna tell you why. Uh, for me, it, it kind of like gave me goosebumps, uh, Kitty. Because I was a huge, you know, I was a huge first baseman fan, switch hitter and first baseman fan because what I, I grew up, you know, I was a switch hitter and I played mostly first base. So um, my big guys were Richie Allen, you know, Eddie Murray, um, Tony Perez, obviously me being Cuban born. But Richie Allen for me was one of my favorites. So it's interesting. And I finally get to meet him maybe probably about 10 months before he unfortunately passes away. And uh, and it was the coolest thing. I still have that picture. And it's so important for me, the history of baseball and and longevity of someone such as yourself is paramount. And I I just want to touch on, you know, your ability to do that. And one of the reasons that it made you a Hall of Fame framer is how good you were for how long. So uh, please, uh, you know, what was the secret to that, you know, for you?
2: Well, I, I I think the simple answer is if you're left-handed and you can walk and chew gum and throw it over, <laughs> you got a, you got a good chance to uh, to last for a while. But you know, on a on a serious note, I think we had a, a an expression when I was like 20 or 21. You'd hear the expression, "You never know how to pitch. You never learn how to pitch until you hurt your arm." So my first arm injury, not a career ender, was, uh, you know, I just struck out 19 in the Southern League. And, and I was, you know, considered a power pitcher then. And all of a sudden, I have a little shoulder issue and I break a bone in my wrist. And none of it kept me from getting back on the field. But I had to learn how to pitch instead of just like today it's such a power thrower's game. In fact, uh, my first manager in uh, Class D ball at the end of the year said, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. Well, today, if you went to a camp and didn't have a fastball, you'd never get a chance. So I think the fact that I learned how to, how to pitch as a lot of my coaches said, you know, the Nolan Ryans, the Colfaxes, the power guys, they get hitters out. You have to give hitters a chance to get themselves out. And you do that with movement, change of speeds, motion, control. So by learning those things at an early age, I think it enabled me to adjust and, uh, you know, and stay around for a long time.
1: One more for me on the Hall of Fame, Kitty. Is it something that was constantly on your mind? I mean, you don't seem like someone that, you know, gets fixated on one thing like that. You've got so much going on always. (laughs) In life, many skills and many plans. So you know, obviously, I'm sure you always, you know, when it's it's something once, especially you're in the bigs, you're you're going for the big prize as a team. But it's also something on your mind. If someone, I'm sure, there's not a player that's ever played that's that's said, "Oh yeah, Hall of Fame's not for me." I mean, an individual, it's the ultimate individual accomplishment. But I mean, it, you know, like you said, it's it's not something. It took a while, um, and it was done you know, with the committee. So is it something that it's at some point you said all right, it's cool. If it happens, it happens all good. Um, or was it something that you really had set on your mind that felt like it would kind of put a bow on your entire baseball resume? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't feel like you're one of those people that where I've spoken to some others that have said, you know, I've spoken to some others that are Hall of Fame candidates, and some of which I think are Hall of Famers that sometimes come on shows with me and then we'll say, and they'll kind of help to state their case because, you know, they don't want to completely say it, but they, it probably bothers them. I I have a feeling it wasn't something that was completely irking you. Right.
2: You're exactly right. I had actually, over the years, uh, I was curious in my early years, because as Fergie, who was a a big supporter of mine, I understand Fergie Jenkins, he had one more win than I did, but he was a dominant pitcher. Uh, He did his with, Consistent 20 game season. So when I was first eligible and my win total was close to Robin Roberts and Fergie, I was curious to what the reception would be. But I think I learned early on that uh, because I wasn't that perennial opening day starter, all star dominant pitcher, that that's one of the reasons that Tommy John and I think TJ will get in the next time. But, you know, we did ours over a period of time like a marathon runner, not like a sprinter. And actually it was last spring when I was playing golf with my good friend and former teammate Mike Schmidt. and I get asked all the time, uh, you think you'll ever get in the Hall of Fame?" And I said, I've kind of put it in my rearview mirror because I, I understand now that the starters in the Hall of Fame are are elite number one pitchers and Schmidt said, Uh, Don't be too sure. He said, I'm on the committee this year, and he said, I'm going to state your case. And there are others I know that feel that uh, there's reasons to put you in the same class with some of those uh, Hall of Fame pitchers. So uh, I thought this year I would get the best hearing that I've ever had, which I did. But I really, in the past, have, uh, after I missed a few times, I'd kind of put it in my rearview mirror. It's something that. it wasn't going to change me as a person and it wasn't going to change uh, what I felt my career was like. I mean, I haven't thrown a pitch since 1983. So my record didn't, didn't change. And I said, well, you know, you you had a pretty nice career and you were almost hall of famer, but now it's, uh, it's pretty rewarding and exciting to see uh, the magnitude of the excitement and attention from others. You know, people you haven't heard from like my, college roommate. Uh, He was the right-hand pitcher. I was a left-hand pitcher. We played seven. We played uh, 12 games, six double headers. seven innings. I pitched 42 innings. He pitched 42 innings. We had a two-man pitching staff. I hadn't heard from Al in 40 years, and all of a sudden, he's called. He's already got a hotel room. He's coming to the Hall of Fame induction, so it's things like that have really created a lot of excitement for me.
0: Okay, speaking of uh, the big prize, uh, that 82 World Series was special, a, a seven-game series doozy between your victorious Cardinals versus, as they called them, Harvey's Wallbangers, Harvey Keen's uh, incredible, powerful team. Uh, I want to know your thoughts on that. Several Hall of Famers from from both those sides ended up coming out, out out of that 82 season, and it was the precursor to your retiring 83. But talk to us about that uh, that special 82 season.
2: Well, the 82 season, I think it's the last really exciting team that played the game the way I was taught to play it as a youngster because uh, we hit 67 home runs as a team. Uh, We stole 200 bases. Whitey Herzog had said to me in the offseason – I still wanted to to be a starter. I like starting. And he said, I want you to be my lefty-lefty guy. I'm going to build the pitching staff from the ninth inning back. We got Bruce Suter. We had our little quintet of relievers down there. And we were very effective when we we had the lead after seven. So we really won the World Series over – you know, the Brewers who had a lot of sluggers, but we won with pitching, defense, and speed. And the home run was just, oh, by the way, it happened once in a while. (laughs) And of course, as far as the way the game has changed, you guys both know that, uh, it's now strikeouts, walks, and home runs. And the, the game to me is not as appealing as it was. I think the talent level's off the charts. I mean, the, the individual athleticism, if they would, uh, Burn the analytics and just throw the ball out (laughs) let it play. You know we would we would see uh, baseball the way we'd like it.
1: Well, you did some name dropping there too, Kitty. So I'd like to kind of double down on that because you played in the game for 25 years, and you entered the game in 1959 with the Washington Senators. Your last appearance was in '83 with St. Louis. So I'm sure you've been asked this one before, but there are many names to shuffle through. The toughest and/or most notable pitcher that you faced that you matched up against, and then same question for hitter who you faced in the box. When when I say Kitty, the the one guy that stood out or the one story, who is it?
2: Well, you know there were there were several guys I had problems with. That doggone Reggie Smith. He told me he hit about four hundred off me, and then after our careers were over, we're visiting, and he said, you know, I had your pitches. (laughs) <laughs> said, now you tell me, but as far as over a period of time, the guy that did the most damage was Al Kaline. Uh, Brooks Robinson's average is about the same, but Kaline I always considered really my toughest out, and uh, I had the the honor. I don't know if I'd say it was a thrill because it was not. Uh, it, it was tough to win against him, but I I faced Sandy Koufax three times in the uh, sixty five World Series, so. Uh, we didn't clock the fastballs in, but, you know, Sandy, I think along with Bob Gibson, maybe Marichal, uh, they were just head and shoulders above the others as far as speed. And, uh, so those are the two names, you know, Whitey, they used to ask Whitey Herzog, what do you think of your team this year? You gotta think you have a chance to win. He said, we're, we're two players away. Koufax and Ruth. <laughs>
0: I tell you what, but you had some pretty good ones over there with that Minnesota team uh, or Washington going into Minnesota, uh, uh, you know, a guy that I love very much. And Camilo Pasquale, uh was on that team. But but when you were coming up, you know, then and you as a youngster, at what point, you know, I know for me, there was a there was a, a point that, you know, I, I felt, you know, that I belonged and, and 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 I felt comfortable, comfortable playing at that level, you um, walk us through, you know, youngster Jim Cott as, as he gets, you know, the call up and, and, and feels comfortable in the major leagues.
2: Well, you know, that's a great question. And I I mentioned that to a lot of young pitchers or young golfers, uh, aspiring golfers. I say, you know, when, when you get to the point where you feel comfortable, particularly when the situation is uncomfortable, you know, then I think you've arrived. So for me, it was 1961. My, my overall record was nine and 17, but, uh, you know, we finished seventh that year and, you know, I'm like, uh, 22 years old, just kind of, uh, growing into my career. And, uh, Eddie Lopat was my pitching coach. And I remember, uh, pitching against the Royal, uh, yeah, the, the Kansas city, uh, A's at the time, not the Royals. I gave up uh, back-to-back home runs, uh, to Joel Pignatano and Darren Johnson, but I got the next guy out and I came in and, Eddie Lopat said, Hey Kit, I think you've arrived. You know, I didn't get scared out of the strike zone. I completed the game and then I had a few more complete games. And all of a sudden I began to say, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable here. I belong. And, and, uh, you know what that feeling is like, but it takes, you can't really teach it. You just, it's an acquired skill that you have to, uh, that you have to acquire. And of course you mentioned Camilo Pasquale, uh, when we became the twins, our logo on our cap was TC. And a lot of people, as we went around the league, it was new to them. The twin cities, they say, what's that TC, TC stand for. And we would kiddingly say 20 Cubans. because <laughs> Papa Joe Cambria, you know, was signing all those, sign teams. all the Cubans on that team. We had Camilo and we had Pedro Ramos and Jose Valde. So all along came Tony Oliva. And so, we had a lot of Cuban stars, and uh, Camilo was a great <laughs> – Never knew uh, that. He was a great role model for oh. me because he, I, he won 20 games, even though we were a second division team, and I just loved watching the way he went about his business. He had the right temperament, and I, I learned a lot about how to conduct myself as a professional. And, you know, Camilo is still down in Miami. Yes. He's like 88 or 89 years yes, old he now.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I love them to death. Um, yeah, all, all those guys, all those guys, kind of little by little tutored me back in the day, and, uh, and when I was coming up in Miami. So I, I I owe so much to every single one of them. The uh, twenty Cubans, I'm gonna remember that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How about sixteen gold gloves? So, and I think this is important for kids that are listening, that want to be excellent defenders, but also just people that watched you and were amazed at how gifted you were after the baseball was pitched and then it was coming back to you. So, what would you say has been the key to your success in terms of excellent defense for so many years in the major leagues, be able to rack up 16 gold gloves and match Brooks Robinson for the most in a row all time?
2: Well, I'd say first of all, I I People uh, kind of raised their eyebrows at this, but I learned how to feel my position from listening to the radio and Bobby chance I was a little guy. I didn't grow till later. So I had the quickness when I was 5'8", five, five, And Bobby Chance was my hero. He was 5'7", won the MVP in 1952. When they'd be in Chicago playing a game, I could listen to eight games on a Sunday afternoon. Cubs, White Sox, Tigers, and Braves all played a doubleheader. So when the A's came in, and that was my dad's favorite team, pitching against uh, the White Sox, they'd say, here's Bobby Shantz, uh, greatest fielding pitcher in baseball right now, lands on the balls of his feet, always facing the hitter, ready to go either way. So I would go in my backyard with a tennis ball, bounce it off the garage, and make believe I was Bobby Shantz. So 1958, my first spring training, uh, we go through the pitcher's drills, And after about two rotations, the pitching coach said, hey, kid, you look just like Bobby Shantz. Well, you know, the the side story is a few years ago, Rawlings brought Bobby in for the gold glove dinner. And at age 80, I gave a legacy award to my boyhood hero, who was 93, he's now 95. And so that's who I modeled myself after. But I think uh, feeling for a pitcher is just anticipation. It doesn't take a lot of skill. It takes anticipation, paying attention, being uh, ready to feel the ball when it gets gets hit back at you. And I think one of the biggest uh, thrills I had as a fielder was game two of the 65 World Series. Willie Davis, who could fly, he was an outfielder for the Dodgers. I think that might still be a record. I had 5 putouts, but I got Willie Davis first base to pitcher three times, so I actually had to get to first base before him, which was wow. not easy to do. And the only way you'd really do it is not with speed, but was with, with anticipation.
0: Yeah, coming off that mound properly and and, and hitting that line and coming across, uh, you know, some things that again not as practiced now. And one of the things that I always found interesting uh, back then, by the time I was coming up in the in the late mid eighties into the nineties pitchers weren't good hitters anymore. Right? And I used to dog them still do on the air and saying, that's not, you know, they're not athletes anymore. They used to be athletes, but yeah, okay. you, you hit 16 home runs, you know, one year are at 289. I mean, you prided yourself on that other aspect of the game along with defense. And of course, most importantly, pitching, uh, kitty, um, talk a little bit about that era and your offense per what you were trying to do to win the game.
2: Well, I think as kids in the playground, we were, you know, I always took pride in being a baseball player that just happened to be a pitcher. You know, we right. would play all different positions because kids today really don't play unless they have a uniform on, but we just, you know, we played amongst our kids in the neighborhood, like probably in, in your era, everybody did that. And so I, I took a lot of pride in that. And then when I got into the big leagues, my coaches like Eddie Lopat, Johnny Sane would say, if you can be responsible for one run a game, that means the other team has to get two to be ahead of you. So whether it's bun a man over, uh, steal a base, which I was able to do once in a while, just I I enjoyed being involved in the game. I have such great admiration for Otani, what he's been able to do in today's game. I mean, it's just freaky, but we we all as pitchers in enjoyed the hitting part of the game and, and we took it seriously and we worked at it and particularly bunting. But unfortunately, the the young players today, even in a little league, they didn't get a chance to hit. So they never really developed any sort of a skill for, for hitting like, like we did when we were kids. And
1: one more tip
2: that I've heard,
1: and I think we've spoken about, Kitty, that plays to your excellence on defense, too. And maybe you did this with the offensive game as well. Same glove for a long time. Did you have same bat, if possible, before it broke for a long time? Was there anything to
2: that comfort-wise or maybe superstitious-wise, too? Well, I had the one of the first Wilson A2000s. You know, it's like an old pair of jeans or a sweater. Uh, <laughs> it just kind of molded to my hand. If I threw it on the street corner right now, a kid wouldn't even pick it up. But uh, we would get two new gloves every spring, and I would keep one to uh, – for the days I didn't pitch, and I'd give one to some of the minor leaguers because you know, in those days we had to buy our shoes, buy our equipment. And so I just had that one glove that I that I broke in, and that was my gamer. I still have it up in my memorabilia room with uh friction tape all over it and trainers that have stitched it together. But uh yeah, I used it for 15 uh 15 straight years.
0: That's impressive, you know. And and uh the other thing I wanted to ask you about is as far as talking about coaching and, and the guys that you've had before now, I mean, the, the coaching aspect is so important in, in, you know, the realm of baseball um, who are some of the other guys that, you know, made an impact on you coming up?
2: Well, I mentioned Camilo as a player and then Eddie Lopat, I was fortunate was my first pitching coach and then Johnny Sane and what made them so effective and Johnny, everywhere he went had 20 game winners uh, you know, Mudcat won 21 with us when we went to the world series in 65, but they were not power pitcher pitchers. So they really taught us how to pitch, how to make the ball move and how to spin it. And we weren't interested in miles per hour or, uh, RPMs or anything like that. But, uh, uh, I was lucky to have those guys in my, in my early years. And then I think, uh and I tried to do this when I coached for Pete. I coached the pitchers in 1985 for Pete Rose. Is as as, uh, as Eddie Lopat used to say, eventually you have to learn to be your own coach. Hmm. So you took what was from those guys, and and when the game was going on, you didn't have time to get a lesson. Then you had to make your adjustment on the on the mound. So you had to figure out what worked for you and what didn't. And I always encouraged guys, and I did it myself, was asking. Other pitchers, how they did things. Now, I'll tell you a quick side story. My my first win was against uh, Whitey Ford in 1960 in the stadium. And then about two years later, I'm uh, I'm hooked up with Whitey, and we're at the Met in Minneapolis. And the bullpens are pretty close together, so I can hear Whitey's fastball spinning. I can hear the rotation. <laughs> so I thought, what if I just walked over to the Fence, and then as as an aside, Whitey and I became great friends, and I got to know him well in our post playing career days. But I said, I wonder what he'd say if I went over and said, "Hey, Whitey, how do you hold your fastball?" So he could have told me take a hike or several right. other things he might <laughs> right. have said. So I, he had a little break in the action. It was a hot day. He wiped off his forehead, and I quick went over to the fence. I said, "Whitey, you mind showing me how you hold your fastball?" Well. Today we have the two seam and the four seam, or we called it cross seam or with seam. And he held his at a little bit of an angle and created a spin that was a sinking spin that would go down and away from a right-hand hitter, would me be in a lefty. Well, that right. was 1962, and I threw my fastball with that same grip for the next 21 years. Holy so God. it's a it's an example of. There are stars out there that are doing things where you say, Man, I wonder how he does that. And I always took it upon myself to ask, you know, other players that were successful how they did things.
0: That's amazing. That's great. Asking questions sometimes, you know.
2: <laughs> I tell you, Scotty B, a
0: lot of kids don't don't ask questions. I, you know, I've got teenagers yeah. now. I said, ask questions to your coach, and they don't right. do it, man. Right. Best way to learn,
1: best way to soak up knowledge. And I think also, you know, and I talk to many players nowadays that say, hey, I watch this guy on YouTube and then it's such a thrill to finally meet him and then and then go deeper into why he does what he does. Right. Talking about swing mechanics or, you know, how he throws a baseball. So I think that actually happens with. Jim Cott over the years in his broadcasting career. Because, and that's Mm -hmm. the next layer that I want to just spend a few minutes on with you, Kitty, is the fact that life after baseball for some players can be scary, can be challenging. It's so much routine for so much of your life. And then you go through this transition and you have been living your best life for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So, what would you say is the key to life after baseball for players. And of course you can get into some of what you do in life now from your golf greatness to the broadcasting for years and your work with the MLB Players Alumni Association as well.
2: Yeah, I think first of all, I was very lucky because I pitched until, well, I went to spring training with the Pirates when I was 45. And then I went right into broadcasting the next year. I had done some games for ESPN. So you know, I think this is my sixty fourth season in Major League Baseball is either a player, or a coach, or an announcer. So I didn't have that gap time. But I know the guys today make a lot of money, but but and they can retire early. And I think a lot of them are finding things to do uh, that are beneficial. You know, community uh, community projects or you know foundations that they've started to to help with nonprofits, but. I was fortunate that I just segued right into broadcasting and I started doing games with, you know, Ralph Kiner. And then I did some with Dick Stockton and Dick Enberg and they, they taught me the ropes early on, which, you know, there are fundamentals to broadcasting just like there are to pitching and, and uh, that's what's helped me in, in broad. And I think the fact that my dad was such a fan. And so I really took to the history of baseball Uh, took me to my first games, doubleheaders in 1946. So I've really followed the game, you know, a long time. I saw Ted Williams play the first time I went to a game in 46. And then in 59, I actually got to pitch to him and I got to know him. So I always had a great appreciation for the history of the game. Also, speaking of that,
0: and, and you were talking about players joining organizations and joining great, you know, uh, plights and and um, and uh, nonprofits. You did the same. You were the first president uh, in the MLBPA, the Players Alumni Association. Talk about those years and and that involvement and how that came about.
2: Well, Jim Hannon and the guys that that founded Freddie Valentine and Chuck Hinton that founded the alumni. Uh, they asked me one time. They were looking for someone who you know had some experience and maybe had a a name that might be more recognizable among the the current players and the former players. So they asked me would, uh, you know, my playing career was over and they said, would you, uh, would you think about being the president of the alumni? I said, well, you know, I don't have any business experience, but whatever it is, if I could do that. So uh, I did that. I went to Washington DC and we had a staff of about four or five people and about the only thing, going on with some charity golf tournaments and really the only money that that raised was enough money to pay the staff at that time. And, uh, Peter Uberoth was the commissioner and his kind of number one PR guy was Joel Rubenstein. And they were, they were trying to, uh, almost phase the alumni out because they mm-hmm. formed, uh, an organization called bat baseball, uh, assistance team now fortunately the like alumni and bat work close very closely right. together but the one guy in the office that i thought uh really you know had a future and 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 was committed to it was dan foster so uh, so i i, I still is him. So that was what thirty thirty five 35 years ago or something so uh, that's what I told the board. I said, here's the guy I think, uh, because, you know, I'm going into announcing, I'm not going to be a full-time, uh, executive. <laughs> and, uh, so that, that kind of, sp- you know, Dan came in and all of a sudden made great strides. I think we have seven or 8,000 members now and we've Incredible. got little league clinics and international. So, you know, Dan has really been the guy that spearheaded, uh, and, and the organization and helped it branch out when we got uh, cooperation from bat and cooperation from the, uh, players association. So it, it's really rewarding to see how that organization has grown from just the germ of an idea with that group of former players from Washington, DC.
1: That's amazing. No. And I think that Jim, you're work in that process and the example that you set has really laid a foundation for many players after you. So, um, I do think, you know, we could probably chat for, for hours, but, Oh, it is that time (laughs) to get, get the big idea, the big, well, you know, to cap it off.
0: Yeah. You know, when when we have a guest such as yourself here or any guest really, but the the magnitude of the stories, both on and off the field, we're going to have like a, a little cool little segment that we're going to call uh oh no way jose and uh tell (laughs) me uh you know something that might have happened to you jim kitty uh over the years or a personality just an instance that you can kind of relate to that you got no way that that guy do that or this happened uh is there one that you can think of that that might have been uh pretty special and funny
2: Well, I don't know if it'd be funny, but it certainly was quite an experience (laughs) as I was the opening day pitcher in 1965 in Minneapolis, right? So I lived out in Burnsville, which was a suburb south of Minneapolis. So I'm driving into the ballpark, uh, opening day morning and the traffic is backed up on 35 W it's not going anywhere. We didn't have cell phones. (laughs) So I get out of my car and I said to the fellow up ahead, what's going on? He said, Well, the river's flooded. There are still signs there that show how high the river was. So I went back to my apartment and I called Paul Gill, who had been a teammate of mine and was now the sports director of WSCCO Radio. So I called Paul. I said, Paul, there's four of us out here. Bill Buffet, Dick Stigman, Rich Rollins, myself live in Burnsville. We can't get into the ballpark and I'm scheduled to pitch today. Holy so wow. he said, he said, stay at home, I'll call you back. So he called back and he said, Go to the high school parking lot at Burnsville High School. We we'll have the traffic helicopter there in about a half hour. So they flew us in two by two. We only had sixteen thousand people at the game that day because the because sure. of all the flooding. So I got a helicopter ride in to pitch the game, and uh, we ended up winning opening day six five. I think we went eleven innings, and then uh, and then a helicopter ride uh, afterwards. So that was Kid, yeah. you
0: figured go eleven innings on top of that after all that. Well, crazy.
2: I, I, went, uh, I went nine. You know, no, no, I'm <laughs> saying the game. You know, the game, and you went nine. Yeah, well, you know, we were trained to go nine. <laughs> <laughs> they don't go nine anymore. Well, I I feel bad for today's pitchers because it's not their fault. It's the way they were trained. I mean. Personally, I think they have dumbed down pitching with all the science behind it that they're really not allowing these guys to flourish the way they could. They're certainly bigger and stronger than we were, and they're capable of doing that, but they have all these myths about pitch counts and innings restrictions, and yet we have more injuries than ever before, so... I kind of like the way, uh, you know. Our theory was it'll uh, it'll wear out before it'll rust out. So,
0: <laughs> hey Scotty B, you know that the uh, kitty was uh, Ken Griffey Junior. before Ken Griffey Junior. He was flying in in helicopters for games before. Uh, you, know, you were you were an all star man. You were you were like Hollywood flying in like that. <laughs>
1: That's as VIP as it gets. I can't get to the game. I'm going to call (laughs) it. That is going to helicopter me to the game so I can make my start. I don't think there are any modern pitchers that have a story like that. That's pretty incredible. That's awesome. It makes me think of one more bonus story that I need to include, Kitty, just based on our time working together on broadcasts. And I actually looked up as we were chatting to the date. And I'm sure if I say it, you'll probably recall it right away because yeah, if more pitchers, you know, worked quickly, worked deeper into games, they probably would miss less concerts, miss less dinner reservations. May 4th, 1977, Jim Cott had a concert to attend. So Jim, what happened that day? Do you remember?
2: Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the day that uh, Kenny Rankin, who was uh, since passed away, was a Kind of a balladeer, I guess you'd say, that I enjoyed. And he was going to perform uh, at San Diego State. I believe I was hooked up with Randy Jones that day, in a 7 o'clock game, and I said to Brian Perlman, the equipment manager, I'm going to get a car outside the park here near the clubhouse. And I said, I'll probably be a little late uh, because of the game. Well, we played the game in an hour 36. What? Showered, jumped, uh, Randy Jones beat us, which he did all the time that year. And I jumped in the car and got out to the concert. And uh, uh, I don't think I missed anything. So uh, that was the the reason for working fast, throwing strikes.
1: Didn't miss a song. Oh, how about that? The game started at seven. Concert started at nine. He said he was there, showered, dressed in his seat. Sitting down. That's Didn't miss a minute. Probably I mean, even maybe grabbed a snack or a beverage, and he's sitting there <laughs> chilling after an hour and a half complete game. So, Kitty, oh, I mean, you, gosh. you knew, you know how to do it now, but you knew how to do it then too. Amen. To live life
2: to its fullest, right? <laughs> yeah, I've I've been very fortunate. I mean, I I remember when uh, I got released in '83 on that, and here I had the longest career for a pitcher at that particular time. Tommy John passed me by a year and then Nolan by another year. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden I got a phone call from Joe McDonald said, well, uh, we're picking up this left-hand pitcher, Dave Rucker. So we're releasing you. And there after 25 years, 27, actually professionally going to the ballpark every day there, I woke up and what do I do? And so I was so fortunate. I said, you know, I had the greatest 25-year vacation one person have. And then I got right into, Jack Buck told me, you know, I said, He said, I heard you're interested in announcing. And I said, well, I'm giving it a try. I don't know if it's going to work out. Called me off to the corner. I thought he was going to give me some sage advice. He said, don't tell anybody how easy it is. Just smile and cash the checks. So I five years involved in what I call legalized robbery, just doing what all three right now and talking baseball. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Tell you're telling people kitty
1: <laughs> kitty it was That's a pleasure awesome. hanging with you in the legends lounge next time we'll have you take the helicopter and just come right here and hang with you us go. in person okay we'll talk <laughs> to you very soon
0: you're the best kitty okay take care
1: Jim Codd is a wonderful human being, basically ageless, like a fine wine. So I feel like this week in baseball hits the age is just a number category. 40-year-old <laughs> twirling a perfect game, May 18, 2004, against the Braves. Randy wow. Johnson, first no-no in D-backs history. 117th and final pitch of the game, clocked at a casual 98 miles an hour at a time when guys weren't pitching to those standards velocity-wise. Not, not many. Simple
0: quote not many. from Randy, not bad for being 40. You know Randy, don't you? I know him. I know Big Unit very well, and he knows me very well. As I I told him when he made the Hall of Fame, that uh, uh, he couldn't have made it without me, uh, Scotty B, because I was his first strikeout in the major leagues. And uh, it was the most uh, uh, best strikeout for me because I actually made money on that strikeout. Years later, when he hit 4000, I ended up signing a baseball with him on one side, really, which was the main side, <laughs> and the other side was me saying "Arrestus, try the first victim of the big unit," and and it sold very, very well. Made me some nice money for a punch out. I'll take it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Time for where are they now? Always, if possible, tying it in to our great guest and this week. Jim Cott was amazing, as yes. expected. <laughs> what so stories? Good. Yeah, so the good. stories are amazing.
0: And again, and, he's 81, 80, I think. It, I mean, this guy get out of here, Scotty B. I mean, he's sharp as a as a tack man. Yeah, he he is
1: really aging
0: um, in reverse. Let's
1: let's be real. <laughs> he really you is. know. Uh, He has not aged. He also can beat just about anyone still on the golf course. Tom Brady's got nothing on him. (laughs) (laughs) I agree, right? What is it? We got to call it JK something. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Whatever Jim Cotts doing, it's it's working for him. And hey, he is living in beautiful terrain up in Vermont. So for this Where Are They Now, we're going to feature a former big leaguer who feels at home on the water and in the wilderness, Tom Bruno, a Chicago, Illinois native, Pitched right. for the Royals, the Blue Jays, and the Cardinals. Just a brief time, 1976 to 1979. Final big league delivery for the Cardinals. And then he
0: relocates to South Dakota. South Dakota, good old wow. God's country out there, South Dakota.
1: Fishing, hunting. So he's actually been able to turn it into a successful business for more than 30 years. Bruno has helped outdoorsmen harvest ringneck pheasant on the pastoral landscapes of South Dakota and land walleye through his Major League Adventures Guide service. How good is that? And even ties the the Major League name into it.
0: Never been to South Dakota. I may want to go now to see Mr. Bruno. It's on my
1: list, for sure. I feel like I would would definitely... be able to chill out there, maybe more so than, than my New York city digs. It's, it's fast living over here in Manhattan. so Yes. (laughs) High stress. But that's the thing, you know, even for, for anyone you have to have your escapes too. Right. And sometimes you're able to turn those passions into, into your job, but, but even so just to have something for me, for example, I'll be working on a daily basis through the season, traveling all over the place, and I'll sneak in a concert, right? I'll sneak in a show. I'll sneak in a festival, even if it's for a few hours and then go to work. Whatever it is, that's that's one of my things that I'll do where I feel like, all right, this is for you. You can go be yourself. You can get away for a little bit it's not the most chill landscape at all times. I'll tell you that because I'm usually listening to electronic music. So we're, we're, we're bumping and and jumping, (laughs) you know? Yeah, we're going, but you know, it's not like I'm taking a break and getting a massage, which also sounds amazing, but that's one of the things for me that's on my list that just helps me to kind of chill and take a few hours for myself.
0: You know, during my playing career, it was strictly, uh, reading, uh, definitely I would read, Prior to going like on the bus, if we were on the road, especially not so much at, at home, but when I would get to the ballpark in my home ballpark, then I would find 15 or 20 minutes. And usually my, my you know, I was a Larry, uh, uh, Lawrence Sanders, uh, Clancy, you know, kind of detective novel, something intriguing, a little sci-fi just to kind of just take my mind off after thinking, waking up, who am I facing? What's going on? How's my right hand hitting? How's my left hand hitting? Keep your shoulder in. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. All of a sudden, I was encapsulating myself for 20 minutes. I would always try to find 15 to 20 minutes to read and read a chapter. And then I would put it down, and then I would be able to go play the game. Now, I don't read anymore. What I do is karaoke. I am a Mac daddy. We're, we have a similar thing. You like to go to concerts. Wow. I'm not big in concerts, but I am big in my playlist. And my diversity of I like from the Gypsy Kings to Andrea Bocelli to, you know, Weezer. Uh, it, it, I, I really like, uh, and then trying to sing the songs, but I saw
1: <laughs> Whatever. You do you. Everyone does. And I, I sing at these concerts too. So I love that. Where do you that. think I picked
0: that up, Scotty B? <laughs> Where did you Japan. pick that up?
1: Where's Japan. karaoke from? <laughs> that's right there's all the karaoke bars
0: out there right oh my gosh dude i can't wait to when we go one day we're gonna legends lounge over there in tokyo at a karaoke stop in Rapungi. It's gonna be live, bro. It's gonna be awesome. I'm I'm all about
1: it. That is amazing. I see, I learned something new in the lounge today, too, with, with o, that is really cool. So now I was gonna say you go read your book, but then you totally no. you know you totally get threw me the curveball. So Fly you go me sing to your song
0: and let me play.
1: Dang. Perfect, perfect, <laughs> perfect way. That that is last call right now at the lounge. Oh is closing it up tonight. You do you, you go. Rock that karaoke. I'm going to hit a rave and we'll see everyone soon. This (laughs) week's lounge is now closed.
0: The Legends Lounge Podcast is brought to you by Major League Alumni Marketing. Hit us with questions or comments at legendslounge at mlbpaa.com. Check out our memorabilia at MLAMAuthentics.com. Later, legends.